Hello and welcome back to the Sense of Place podcast. Now I know it's been a while since the last episode, a good few months, but I'm happy to be back. And I just wanted to share that during this little break, I had a really lovely review from Michael Follyfoot on iTunes, as well as a new patron, Conrad, who joined us so I just wanted to say thank you very much to both of you given the silence for quite some time. Now in today's episode I chat to author and journalist Cal Flynn about her latest book Islands of Abandonment which explores the ecology and psychology of abandoned places. Cal visits an array of sites including ghost towns, exclusion zones, no man's lands and post-industrial ruins. In our chat today, we do touch on most of the sites Cal visits, even if very briefly, but we focus in on a few of these sites more closely. So I thought it'd be good to give you a bit of context and history of these sites. So when you go into the episode, you're armed with a little bit of knowledge and you know the, like I say, like the history and context of these sites we delve into a little bit further. So firstly is the Scottish island of Swona, which hasn't had inhabitants since the 1970s. And there are wild cows there which descended from farmers who were the last people to leave the island. Also Chernobyl, which I'm sure most of you have heard of. Uh, Obviously this is a site where a nuclear accident occurred in 1986 at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. This led to the evacuation of the city about nine days later and it's thought about 14,000 residents lived there at the time. The city of Detroit in the US, this was once a booming industrial city and the home of the American motor industry. But since the 1960s, it's faced a prolonged period of decline and Detroit has actually become the largest US city to file for bankruptcy. Now, before we get into today's episode, I'll give you a brief rundown of some of the things me and Cal chat about. Firstly, we discuss what sparked Cal's interest in abandonments alongside her process for writing and researching the book. We then look at how nature benefits from our absence and in turn the positive effect this can have on the recovery of ecosystems. The human desire to control and select what can be in our quote-unquote, natural world, as well as the social and ethical issues surrounding some abandonments. So, there's your brief rundown. I think we'll crack on with today's episode now, and I really hope you enjoy it. Your book explores abandonments, and you kind of highlight the different ways they can affect us and our surroundings, and you sort of look at the visual and aesthetical appeal, the environmental and societal impacts they have on us. And I do want to discuss those areas with you, but firstly, I'd kind of like to know what was your initial draw to the abandonments? I mean, was it one of these reasons or something else? What was it that kind of caught your eye about abandonments? I think what really drew me to begin with was the the sort of emotional experience of, of moving to an abandoned place. Like um, they are interesting ecologically and psychologically and so on, but really like I guess what's at the the heart of the book, I hope, is this sort of like what it what it's like to feel like you're moving through that place. And often when you go to abandoned places, they're really eerie. Um, they're quite thrilling. Um, there's 
they're quite like overwhelming in a sensory way. So I think that that was the initial point, and then everything else was almost like rationalizing the the like obsession with them. So I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I yeah, I suppose they're sort of tangents off of that feeling that you you try to put into words they kind of come off at all different ends don't they like it's just such a Mm. such a vibe and I think like when I was reading the book you really described that well you kind of felt like I'm here and I'm walking through it as well I'm really glad because that that was I guess that was like the main thing while I was writing was like really try and get that across because the worry is you write about something and people are just like well why you know like when I first started talking about the books people people would say why are you doing that you know it doesn't sound fun you know rather you than me and I was like no 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 no, no. these places are amazing (laughs) I mean when you were sort of going through those places as well were you were you making notes and things so you sort of didn't forget or were you just sort of absorbing it at the time Oh, totally. Those real-time notes are so important. They're really like the raw material that everything else gets sculpted out of. So I go with a go with a notepad and just like sketch down anything that I'm I'm feeling or noticing. Often I would do like, I don't know, 10 or 20 pages of just like random notes. This is quite similar to what I do when I do sort of like nature writing, like I sometimes write for the Country Diary for Guardian. So like that, but at like greater length. And then I would also take like hundreds of photos, often of quite like boring things, because I was just trying to completely recreate the journey when I got home. And and sometimes I would take audio recordings. I don't know, anything like that that would just help me sort of get back into that feeling later on. That's the other thing. How did you go about getting to these places as well? Like I was wondering that when I read it, because you kind of met up with people, didn't you? And you were there and they sort of took you through some of the places and that sort of thing. Yeah, it was kind of a, a real mix. So in the urban places, um, partly, I don't know, maybe partly for safety, because it's good to be in company in, in uh, cities if you if you don't know where you're going. Um, but also just for like access, people would know the good places to go. So in the cities, I often found like an urban explorer who knew the area who could take me somewhere cool. Um, and then in other places, I definitely had to go on my own, mainly because either nobody else was interested or the whole point was that it was really awkward to get to and nobody really went there. So for that, I'm thinking of the island of Swona, but also like the, the clearing in the woods in France, um, which I had tried to get uh, in touch with with a couple of scientists who'd, who'd studied it, but they, they'd been very sort of uninterested in me, basically. Okay. <laughs> and so I was just like, okay, I'll go find it and sort of um you know just headed there and, and hoped I could find it on the satellite map which I did you know the night before I was looking on on Bing Maps it's got like satellite view mm. um I couldn't couldn't find it on Google Maps I was gonna but say Bing, Bing Maps, maps. <laughs> I don't believe Google yeah. <laughs> I know I know I was on Google and um their map it must have been like the images that had been taken must have been taken during the summer and you couldn't really see the difference whereas Bing was, was more like maybe early spring or winter and you could see a very obvious like purple smudge in the woods and then I was like that's it um oh. so I was very lucky because that was literally the night before I was in France quite near but I didn't know exactly where it was and then and then it was just like following like forestry tracks through the woods until I found it yeah, I, I have to say, like, there were times when I was reading that book, I was like, damn, you're brave. I could not do this because I did want to ask you about Swona. You know, when you were riding over and the guy was like, oh, yeah, there's a tent le- that's been left behind on the island. Uh, so you were genuinely on your own because I wondered if you maybe went with a friend or something and stayed the night there. Swona, Swona, I was genuinely on my own. God, I don't know how um, you did that. 
it was it was a lot weirder than I don't know what I thought but I just thought you know I'm used to yeah I don't know like I'm used to sort of traveling places alone and by that I just thought you know like me jumping in a bus but on my own if you see what I mean I hadn't really thought through how different it is to be genuinely completely alone um I mean I've I've hiked through through the hills on my own but there you 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 rarely go like a whole day without seeing another person whereas this was it, it felt completely qualitatively different and in a way that I just was very unprepared for <laughs> Yeah, I mean, a bit of context for the listeners. This was like you just stayed in an abandoned cottage, didn't you, on an island that has zero inhabitants except cows. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you were describing sort of the noises you were hearing and everything in the night, I mean, God, I would have <laughs> I would have been so scared because um, your imagination would kind of run wild and you'd like you were thinking, is there somebody else here with me? And- totally, and actually it's been a bit of a relief that that other people have been horrified by this chapter as well because I was really worried that that people were going to think I was a terrible coward because I knew that I was like physically safe you know like compared to a lot of the other places one I was pretty safe and mm. I was 99.9% sure that I was definitely alone um and so when my brain started acting up and I don't know it felt very like gothic horror you know this like things moving around in the in the attic and like objectively moving around in the yeah. attic yeah. um then I was like I don't know if this is going to come off as completely ridiculous so it has been um yeah it's, it's a big relief that other people have also said they would be frightened too <laughs> that was actually one of my favorite chapters I, I think I like the fact that you admitted you were scared though because you know sometimes like with urban exploring it's all like yeah I'm really cool and I'm not scared and mm. you know you think you must be a little bit scared like <laughs> when you go to some of these places. And I mean, especially somewhere like that. In some ways, I, I think I found that one more the most sort of wow, because it's either other places there are sort of outcasts, like in some of the city areas, and that there is people about, whereas that was just nobody. You're all alone except for the animals. Mm. So, mm. so I think quite a few people reading that probably won't have experienced anything like that. Yeah, and I think like in terms of... I don't know. the The more I sort of think about it, this this all happened really by accident. Because, like, I suppose if if he'd wanted to come, my partner Rich might have come too, but he couldn't get time off work, and you know, it was a very long way to go from where we then lived, Edinburgh. So it would be mm. I don't know, a, a whole day's travel. Um, so I ended up just going on my own. But the more that I read about it, the more I'm like, oh, I realise why that chapter works, and it's because in these sort of like classic travel um narratives um it's almost always like somebody on their own and they go into a strange place you know like that aloneness is I I don't know I think it's quite an important ingredient and I didn't really do it on purpose for that chapter but I think that that might be one of the reasons that people respond to it quite quite strongly yeah definitely so if you had so out of all the chapters that one's had quite a People have kind of connected with that one quite a bit. I think so. And and I, I find that interesting because in a way it's almost like the least extreme of the, the chapters, but that psychologically it does seem to tap into something. Yeah, definitely. You obviously did visit other more extreme sites, ex-war zones, ones that have suffered nuclear damage. And a kind of unplanned rewilding happened at these places. Because when I think of that term, I usually sort of think of, you know, somebody's giving nature a helping hand it's like a project a rewilding project but at these places it kind of happened on its own unplanned so would you be able to tell the listeners 
what that was like when you went to these ex-war zones and nuclear sites and they kind of just rewilded on their own. Yeah, sure. Because I, I guess, um, yeah, maybe the main body of the book is about this. It's about the sort of trade-off between the damage that we might, um, I suppose, deal to a landscape and then the the benefits of, of our um, subsequent absence. So, for example, the Chernobyl exclusion zone is a famous example of this. It's like um, it's been reclaimed by a lot of different species. For example, wolf population has has jumped sevenfold, and brown bears, uh, uh, sorry, black bears have re- have returned um, to the zone for the first time in more than a hundred years. So you see, you see all sorts of different species, particularly the species that don't enjoy being sort of cheek by jaw with humans, have really benefited by our absence. And the point in a place like this, or a place like, for example, the the green zone in Cyprus, which is a no man's land, like the buffer zone between north and south, and and the same actually in Korea. Um, in in the demilitarized zone, that it's not that they benefit from war or or nuclear disaster, of course not, but it is this sense of stalemate and of withdrawal of humans over a long period of time mm. that allows this kind of repair and, and and it allows them to become something else. That word rewilding is really interesting, actually, because I I think it's quite um, disputed even within the rewilding movement. Um, but I think most people who are quote unquote rewilders or, or rewilding people probably don't consider my book to to be about rewilding because it's um, theirs is, is more like a sort of conservation method. It's like going in and and maybe planting trees to allow a, a, a landscape to recover or trying to sort of reinstate natural processes. Um, whereas mine is more like this has happened by itself and I'm interested in that. So it's, it's very much like a hands-off approach to um, the subject of, of rewilding. And I suppose mine are sort of extreme examples on the continuum of, of what you might describe as, as rewilding. Yeah, fair enough. Um, I mean, yeah, because I kind of, in my head, I was kind of thinking it is, but, but you're right, actually, it is a very extreme example. <laughs> and I mean, on that note, the ruin and destruction we've seen at sites like this can almost highlight a positive change when it comes to environmental damage and climate change. Life goes on, you know, and I think a lot of the fear around climate change, I suppose, is people don't want to think of a world without humans, but I think the world will keep on thriving based on what you've seen. I mean, these places were damaged beyond belief and life is existing and thriving in in sort of unusual and bizarre ways you know that that's a really good thing to see totally and i think that the 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 things that thrive the thing that worries people is that the things that will survive aren't necessarily the things that we love right so it might be all sorts of i don't know it might become a world in which bacteria are you know, the best at surviving in it. And that's not really something that we as people want to happen. Um, so I think for me, it was partly it was realizing, oh, so what we are, what we're upset about is the human and the human adjacent species, how they will be impacted, that life will go on, but maybe not in a, in a shape that we like. Yeah, no, I agree. I think sometimes humans can be pretty self-centered, can't they? It's like, <laughs> we want the world to go on in, in in the way we see it but I mean I I think honestly like it's an amazing thing to see places that have been completely destroyed form something out of that what did that feel like when you went to places like that I think it's um 
I think there's like this great sense of redemption. I definitely like when I think about, especially when I think about climate change, but environmental damage more generally, I have this sort of like extreme pendulum swinging. Like sometimes I feel very hopeful and like if we just give, you know, the world its head, then everything will be fine. And then other days I just feel like it's a complete disaster. And so I think going places where it helped me sort of see in slightly longer timescales was really positive for me because I started seeing like how much can be achieved in the space of decades mm. you know like how much recovery can take place and, and totally self-directed recovery and it also what it really made me realize was how we also have to be humble in our dealings with other species like when we are um, trying to help them out um, we've got to be careful not to sort of overstep our bounds because you know all of these other species have their own agenda and and are best able to sort of consider well to 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 reinstate themselves and and to live in in that way so if we're making a great deal of effort to sort of move species around or 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 prop up certain species that might be a a strange use of our resources i suppose so it's not so much that i'm saying that we shouldn't fiddle with the rest of the environment but certainly that we need to like consider very carefully about when it's when it's appropriate to do so yeah, I mean, that was something else that I, I really liked in that chapter in the book, sorry, because you kind of talk about us almost playing God when it comes to what we see mm. as natural and beautiful, because you talked about like gardens and parks, and they're actually really ornamental and highly controlled by humans. And you never think that, do you? Like if you go to a city park or something, you're like, oh, this is lovely. It's a lovely green space, but it's not natural. It's been made and the grass is kept all nice and everything like that. And I mean, you also mentioned in terms of, you know, native species, the sort of real desire to control and make sure that they survive. And you kind of touched on it there, but, you know, why do you think it is so important that we embrace these new species and stop trying to control things so much? Yeah, I guess like our attitude towards invasive species or, or, or specifically non-native species but, uh, as opposed to invasive species to begin with um, is a sort of corrective after like a century or a couple of centuries of like not considering the impact of moving species around the world, which we did like wholesale, especially during like the colonial era, just species moved all around the world for all sorts of reasons, some of them like much more stupid than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, we've, we've had this corrective movement, which is like realizing the implications of this a little bit late and then panicking and wanting to like weed out these non-native species, especially those that have become pests, which we call invasive species. Um, but what, what sort of got me a little bit alarmed about the invasion biology field, I suppose, is just the way that the language, and I think that translates to the thinking, um, was really couched in in almost colonial terms that we talk about, like aliens and and invasions and and you know colonizing even you know like all of this language comes from from colonial era thinking, and that actually there are a lot of scientists now who think that the way that we deal with non-native species is a form of like biological racism, you know that we are standing in the way of the success of of certain species that are spreading around the world now their spread has been vastly speeded up by by humans um but there is again this kind of this ethical quandary this this trade-off between you know do you allow them to thrive and live and potentially push other ones out or do you i don't know roll up your sleeves and 
get seriously involved because like digging up invasive plants for example is a very 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 invasive process and it can damage the the plants that you're trying to save um mm. so yeah i was involved um quite briefly in a in a highland project with rhododendrons and you know is is seriously going in with like i don't know chainsaws and um noxious chemicals and you know even even that you know you sort of devastate a hillside of rhododendrons to let other species live and then we plant other trees and and even then you know they were they were coming back the next year yeah. and it was just like I don't know um I'm kind of impressed by the people who are pushing through those projects but but I just felt very like crushed by that and also like maybe we were like working against the grain I don't I don't know how to think about it exactly but I think that that conflict is interesting and I'm really interested in in ethical questions like that especially in conservation because basically the people involved invariably want to do the right thing um but their philosophies are often completely in competition with each other like mutually exclusive i I found that a really interesting point to be honest because it is it's like we have this view that you know if you're getting rid of these supposed pest plants that's a good thing but maybe they're the ones that are thriving and surviving and the same goes with animals so perhaps the other ones have had their time but then it's like you say where do you draw the line i mean you could then argue that these the squirrels are a good example, aren't they? Like the grey squirrels, they've nearly wiped out red squirrels and people see them as pests. And mm. I agree, it's very interesting and it's very like, where can you draw the line with this? It's, it's almost like you've got to have a bit of a balance. Yeah. You don't want that extremism either. And I mean, I must say, I think your book kind of highlighted that to me because I didn't really think about it before, you know, that actually we're being super controlling of natural processes really. Yeah, and I think, you know, like if we make a decision, like with the the squirrels are really interesting because the red squirrels were very not in favour for years and they were persecuted because people hated them. Mm. And then that means that the red squirrels in this country were reintroduced and and people now love them. I try to save them um, at the expense of the greys. And, you know, like to some extent, it's an aesthetic choice because we now prefer the reds. And that's fine as long as we sort of accept that that that's where these decisions are coming from that is because we as humans prefer one over the other um but but often it's couched as sort of good versus evil and i'm not sure that that's exactly what this is anyway it's worth sort of it's worth interrogating and and thinking through yeah and i think a lot of this sort of saving certain species it does link back to sort of like you know red squirrels they got that association with being really british and that sort of Mm. thing um, and I know in your book you mentioned in New Zealand and that sort of uh, and you know native animals there and I think they're these symbols of countries and they don't want to lose that sort of symbol um, yeah, yeah and, it's emotional yeah yeah and it's kind of like thing like you say things go in and out of favor and it's also funny because it's like any sort of plant or creature that are thriving end up sort of being hated except for humans it's like we're thriving like crazy like I think the book for me highlighted kind of how how self-centered humans can be I mean I know we can't be for sure but it's like it does seem like the earth will go on like it will carry on without us and that's a good thing some other species like you say some bacterial thing might take over who knows (laughs) but yeah it's a pretty it's a pretty um bleak silver lining but it's a it's a lining for some people I think (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly suppose it depends on your perspective doesn't it really (laughs) I'd like to talk about the urban spaces you visited as well because you also did raise a really interesting point how you can be so off the map 
you're a city dweller, but you can kind of, nobody knows who you are. You can do anything, be anyone um, when you go to these sort of abandoned places. I mean, what was that like? Did it give you a sense of freedom? Was it scary? Like, how, how did that feel? I think the the place where I felt that the most was in the, those industrial ruins in New Jersey when um, it they were, they'd become a, I guess a sort of hideout for a lot of people like a, a lot of homeless people had gone to live there because they had literally nowhere else to go um and people would also go there to take drugs or to do drug deals um and this sense of of sort of wildness but also that people could be attracted to that too i found that idea very um um provocative and sort of intriguing um you know like so wheeler and banners who was a uh, a local urban explorer who who took me to these ruins, um, he talked quite a bit about when he was a teenager, how he found this, I don't know, this, this solace in places like that, that he'd spent a lot of his teenage years like roaming the halls of an, an abandoned sanatorium near his parents' house and that they had, you know, like he or he and friends would like break windows and climb stuff and take risks and burn stuff. And, you know, that this had been a, an important outlet for him. And I think quite a lot of, well, maybe specifically teenage boys, but I think not, not, not solely them, um, that a lot of people will find that about these places. And that's one of the reasons why they're so thrilling, this sense of possibility of, of potential that you can, you can do anything you want and therefore maybe figure out who you are in a more pure way rather than who you are being a result of the context you've been born in, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. You did meet some characters while you were sort of in these places. I mean, was that something you were expecting to happen before you went there? That one, uh, that place, not particularly. I didn't really know what I was going to um, find, actually. Um, I, I went on a number of, of I don't know, I guess you, I sort of think of them as like fishing trips where you like turn up in places and then sort of see what happens. <laughs> um, and, and Patterson, New Jersey, like the, especially those, those urban ruins at the heart of it was a bit like that. Wheeler had taken me to a few other places, including like an abandoned baseball stadium, which was amazing. Like it was really cool for photos. And if I'd had my drone and that kind of thing, it would be great. But as something to write about, I, I couldn't really f- think what it was about. I, and then we like turned a corner and we walked through the street and we came into these industrial ruins. And it was when I met the people there, I was like, oh, I, I know what this chapter would be for now. It's mm. about, you know, the effect on the mind of, of abandoned places because it was, you know, a very confronting place for lots of different reasons, partly because it's very like physically dangerous in that all of these very old buildings were collapsing and full of like rusted stuff and and a lot of of needles and and other drugs paraphernalia all around um and like people that I didn't know who they were um yeah so like then that that like social feeling of like social danger which is funny because nobody at all was threatening to me not at all it was like um actually kind of a friendly place um, and I think partly because there's this sense that if you're in a place like that and you're not the police or a paramedic, then there's probably something you have in common with them. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. like there's, there's something bringing you together, like something that might not be obvious. Um, and so that was really interesting as well, of just feeling like almost like a sense of like fellowship or like some kind of collegiate feeling among just like meeting strangers. They'd be like, hey almost like in recognition you know you're one of them (laughs) that's really interesting actually because I kind of wondered if if you sort of it would be a case of like oh you're on our turf what are you doing here get out but 
there are there obviously spaces for people who like you say why else would you be there so they're quite accepting yeah yeah definitely the only person that I, I I felt wasn't happy to see us was a woman who quite clearly like lived lived there and we'd been quite close to her house or her camp that she'd set up and actually I could see that from from that point of view she'd not just gone to like hang around and meet people she was actually living there and it probably wasn't a happy thing in her life that she was there so she was the one who was least welcoming and the more I thought about it the more I kind of understood maybe the dynamics of that place yeah yeah I suppose yeah you're going to meet different characters aren't you when you're in a place like that Mm -hmm. I enjoyed that chapter as well because you kind of did talk about the more social aspect of abandonments and the societal aspect you know like how those kind of places attract crime because I think a lot of the time with urban abandonments it's so like all about ruin porn the visual aesthetics of it um and obviously you know like you were saying you wish you brought your drone and everything you can get some really cool pictures and everything Mm. but for some people these really are places that they go to sort of get away or they have nowhere else to go so there's a whole nother element to it than just people coming you know urban explorers coming and taking pictures and that sort of thing totally totally and that's what really came through in Detroit was that sense of like almost like a community fighting back um to like okay yes there are all these attractions of abandoned places but in Detroit actually people are very keen to stamp it out or to like if if there's an abandoned house in their midst People get anxious about it because they've seen how that can sort of spread and, and become a problem. And so that became an almost like anti-abandonment chapter because it was all of the like efforts of people to to not be abandoned or make things appear less abandoned. Yeah, I mean, after I read the, your book, actually, I did watch a few YouTube videos of Detroit and wow, it's there's so many abandonments there. It's crazy. Yeah, like uh, in fact, I've had some interesting conversations with people because p- people come away from Detroit with really different um, takes on it. Like some people were like, I thought you were just unnecessarily negative about Detroit. It's like, it's definitely on the way up and all of this. And I think that, yeah, you know, like there is there is that element of it. Like certainly some areas are on the way up, but just like the scale of abandonment in that city is actually something that's not, really seen you know in, in other places um it it's huge the 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 scale of the issue and although um what's happened with with the the city is is very positive in as much as since the days of um bankruptcy things have have very much turned around and there is a sense of, of things improving but there are neighborhoods that are still majority abandoned buildings or gaps where those buildings were and that is a very unusual situation Mm, definitely out of all the places you went to in the book did you have a favorite or Mm. actually I I really really enjoyed my trip to Montserrat Mm. um which I I sort of don't talk about so often but it is um the the scale of that so for for sort of context for listeners it is an island in the Caribbean um and the, the bottom half of the island basically is an exclusion zone. The The main part of the exclusion zone is called Zone V and it contains a dormant, currently dormant volcano and the former capital, Plymouth, um, which was a very pretty sort of colonial town and port and is now, um, the centre of it is under sort of two or three storeys worth, worth of, of volcanic ash. Um, it was hit by um, pyroclastic flows, the kind of thing that hit Pompeii. Um, so the centre of town is very much like covered in, it looks like concrete, it's like 
the ash is so thick and set. Mm. Um, but the outskirts are actually really amazing. So some of them you can go into without special permission. I needed a, a police escort to get into the main part, but the, the outskirts you can go into freely during the day, but you're not allowed to stay there at nighttime. So that means that people who own the properties can kind of go in and if they want, take care of them. So some people are actually like still paying mortgages on these properties that they might never oh, get to move yeah. back into. Um, and the ones that are not being cared for are really grown over with, um, I guess, sort of like like rainforest, like jungle kind of uh, material. And some of them are, are full of bats or iguanas and, you know, like things really moving in and out. And that was maybe the closest, apart from Chernobyl, to this like like being in a disaster movie or, or some kind of like really post-apocalyptic vision of the future and that was a it was a stunning place to visit um partly for those reasons but also partly just because the rest of the island um is very beautiful very safe very friendly very lovely community um and i just had a really wonderful time while i was visiting there um so yeah if anyone wants to visit montserrat i I highly recommend it yeah definitely i I feel like each of the places you visited they all had something going for them, and if you know what I mean, like mm. going to those places will would stay with you for the rest of your life because it's um, like I said earlier, not a lot of people will go to places like that. Um, I mean, do you do you think you want to kind of do more of this? Go to mm. other sort of sites like this? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm I'm very interested in it now. I suppose there is this other sort of slightly darker element of like they call it like dark tourism right Mm. which is like i don't know how exactly to think of it but like feeling almost like this like perverse allure to go look look at the worst things in the world and i think that done badly that can be very tasteless and i did feel like having the book gave me a reason to do that and it also kept reminding me to like try and be responsible about it and not be too um I don't know what's the word sort of like voyeuristic about it yeah um, but try yeah try and be responsible about it because like you can look at the marketing of of like some of the companies that do tours into Chernobyl because because you can go there as a tourist now relatively easily um and some of some of the companies just like the branding is very tasteless and, and kind of gross um so I think you know I I will but you've got to sort of balance it with yeah, I don't like. I, I definitely got the sense from some people I was speaking to in Detroit, for example, that they're very bored of people coming to come and take photos <laughs> of their ruins because that's not really what they want it to be about anymore, and that's kind of fair enough. So I guess like I've got kind of mixed feelings about that. Like I, I do want to keep writing about this because I'm very interested in all of the issues around abandonment, but then I also feel like I almost need like a reason. Yeah, I suppose your book, it had very clear reasons for the visits there. Um, mm. I know what you mean. I, I've I've done an episode on dark tourism and there is that fine line between, yeah, it just being not very respectful and just very, mm. it doesn't really have a purpose other than people gawking at some, at some awful disaster. Yeah, yeah, like that sort of car crash thing of people slowing down their cars to take a good, you know, like that. I think it is important for people to experience stuff and to learn about stuff. So, you know, it's definitely a fine line. I think one thing I find interesting is, though, I I think when people go to places like this is their their response. But I think some people feel very emotional about it. Other people don't seem emotional at all. Like I've seen, you know, that dark tourism documentary on Netflix when they went 
oh god I can't remember where it was but they went somewhere and there were some people on that bus who got off and they were taking pictures and smiling and it's like just trying to get a picture for the for Instagram and it felt really disrespectful almost it's like people died here and I think other people go with that intention of absorb that feeling of you know something terrible happened here let's not let this happen again kind of thing yeah definitely like I I noticed that a lot in Chernobyl um of like the way that people in the past like not particularly in my group uh of like I, I was there with like a translator and driver and so on um but in the past people who had been there had like positioned like gas masks and windowsills and and like children's prams yeah. and I don't know I find, I find all of that stuff kind of gross because you're like but what really happened here is bad enough like it doesn't need to be posed and somehow exaggerated exactly it's one of those things I'd be really interested to speak to people like that and sort of say to them you know in your head what are you thinking when you're doing this I don't know if they're so detached from it because it it happened so long ago and I think sometimes Mm -hmm. people need to experience these things themselves um it's almost like they think maybe it was a movie and it didn't really happen like it's a movie yeah, set yeah yeah exactly using it as like a set that's exactly what it was like and, and and like engaging with it on a very like superficial level yeah no completely I suppose that's a thing for you yeah like if, if you go back to these places you kind of got to have a reason but certainly in that book I, th- I thought it was really really good I really enjoyed it and um if the listeners wanted to read this where can they get it from well um Islands of Abandonment in the UK is pretty generally available. So I always recommend to people to look in their independent bookshop, but it's also available on Waterstones and uh, on Amazon. I mean, uh, anywhere really. Um, but yeah, do have a look at your, your local bookshop and, and try and support them where possible. Yeah. I mean, what what's next for you? I've, I know you've kind of just had this book coming up. Have you got anything in mind of what you might be working on? Yeah, sort of. So um, I have to say, like, at the beginning of stuff is so much less satisfying because you never know if it's going to come yeah. off. But, um, so I'm sort of chipping away at a project at the moment, which is sort of to do with, like, ideas of wilderness and, like, what people are looking for and how it doesn't really exist. So that's what I'm working on at the moment, doing loads of, of reading around it. But, um, yeah, I can't say for sure that it will definitely turn into something. So. <laughs> yeah, just see where it goes, I guess. Exactly, exactly. So it's just it's just putting in the time at, at this um, at this stage. And either I think at some stage you're like, yep, I've got it, this works. And then sometimes you're like, ah, it's just not sticking. So <laughs> <laughs> that just stays as a file on the computer. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> away. Well, it, it was really good to speak to you, Cal, and I appreciate your time. No, no, no. Thank you so much for for asking me on. I really enjoyed this chat. So thank you so much. So there we have it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And like Cal says, head over to your local bookstore and support them if you'd like to have a read of their book. And for anything else Sense of Place podcast related, please head over to senseofplacepod.com. Here you can also find links to support the show, whether that be a review, patron or Kofi. All helps. Thanks for tuning in and I hope you have a great morning, afternoon, evening, whatever time it is where you're listening and I'll speak to you again soon.